0: The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for July 9th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. We've uh, uh, got some some familiar voices for you, and we've got some updates on two of the <laughs> three actual elections that we care about this year. Including the one that we flew our happy asses all the way out to New York City for. Looks like we have a winner in that contest. Eric Adams going over after his closest competition has now conceded. But boy, was it a squeaker. Go through all the details. Also, we've got a date, a target for our California recall. Gavin Newsom trying to survive the greatest threat to his political career. Will his capricious and at times possibly arbitrary handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and his callous uh, disregarding of his own regulations cost him his phony baloney job? Probably not because the people running against him are stupid. We'll get into that in a second. And our money man, Dave Leventhal, is back. He's got to look into the hilariously dumb world of Congress folk and the stock market. Boy, can they never seem to get it right. All the details for you in just a moment. But first. Eric Adams. The former police captain, turned Brooklyn borough president, turned possible New Jersey resident, <laughs> has survived all of it and become the Democratic nominee for mayor in New York City, considering the party uh, split there in the most populous city in America, that makes him the presumptive next mayor of New York City. Now, the way he got here was perilous. If we're going to tell the full tale, he was not the leader in this race until the final two months. He was running behind Andrew Yang, who flamed out and flamed out dramatically into fourth place. Maya Wiley was his progressive challenger, and she... Came up short despite the fact, or sorry, uh, despite the fact that she made a late charge. She was not the initial anointed progressive favorite. That was Scott Stringer. He got me too'd. Bye bye, sir. That left Catherine Garcia, the former Sanitation Administration official, another uh, uh, ex de Blasio administration member who had become very close in the final count to Adams because this is a ranked choice election. And so while Adams was dominant in first place votes, Garcia was somebody who was a lot of people's second and third votes in candidates that were eliminated in the successive ways that the Board of Elections does it. The final count was 49.5% to 50%. This was very close. Very close. And before we go any further, let me give something to the New York City Board of Elections, something that has been echoed by not one but all of the major candidates in this election. The New York City Board of Elections is an embarrassment. It is a total embarrassment. And I don't think that anybody should feel hesitation in saying that when all of the Democratic candidates in this race are saying the same thing. If we really want to have a conversation in this country about election integrity, then it has to start when we are pointing it out in situations where we are not crossing party lines to do it. So for Democrats... Please, for the love of all that is holy, do not spare your ire for situations like this, specifically those of you in New York. Shred that board of elections. Make it a big thing. Make it a big thing when when the new administration's in. Make it a big thing morning, noon, and night. That's a bad job by them. And if we're going to get as sanctimonious as we have, about how democracy is on the ballot, and it is only in the faith of our democratic ideals that we are able to march forth into our future. Fife music in the background. Then let's understand that the way this works is that actual human beings run machines that count ballots. Let's prioritize the idea that that should be done as much in the open as is reasonable. Let's prioritize the fact that it should be done as fast as possible. Because the longer that you have in between when people vote and when we get results, the only thing that breeds is not certainty, but suspicion. So. With that being said, I wish I had more hands so I could give the New York City BOE four thumbs down. Let's get to Adams. Because much like Lady Gaga singing Shallows with Bradley Cooper, ladies and gentlemen, a star is born on the national stage. You want to know how I know that a national star is born? And Eric Adams, listen to this interview that he did with CBS this morning, this week, after he became the called winner by the Associated Press. (laughs) And we—there's a, there's a permanent group of people that are living in systemic poverty. You and I, we go to the restaurant, we eat well, we take our Uber. But that's not the reality for America and New York. And so when we turn this city around, we're going to end those inequalities. And there's so many ways we can do it. We're dysfunctional as a city, and we're dysfunctional as a country. Archbishop Desmond Tutu has this quote, We spend a lifetime pulling people out of the river. No one goes upstream and prevent them from falling in in the first place. We're a professional place of pulling people out of the river of poverty. I'm going to take our city upstream. It's going to take our country upstream. There's determination. (laughs) A lot of people are counting on him. All right, Mr. Omos, Mayor, congratulations on your projected victory. uh, And we'll see you in November. Yes, thank you. Thank Thank you for being here. Get ready for Eric Adams as a national talking head. He comes off more likable than de Blasio, and he comes off as a human and not a sentient fish creature like Michael Bloomberg. He also is very good at staying in the spotlight. Even when things are bad, Eric Adams will smile in your face and act like he has no idea what you're talking about. He's evasive, and he plays the race card like Ricky Jay is making it rain. Pop, so Dennis Miller line that I've always loved, and now I had a reason to say it. But he does like. There's not a a a a a a slight bruise that you can give to Eric Adams that he does not come back with. Well, maybe a racist. <laughs> Have you considered you're racist? I mean, when he's doing it to to Andrew Yang, you know that that is a hair trigger. But I think we're going to see a lot of Eric Adams. The New York City mayor gets disproportionate amount of press because a disproportionate amount of the press lives in New York City and has strong opinions or fascinations with the mayor. This is a very particular inflection point for New York City coming out of the COVID crisis. We do not know how real the exodus from major cities and big states like New York and California is something that just happened or is an actual shift in population. Eric Adams has now inherited a very fledgling economy that is looking to recover. He has inherited a problem with his police department that was exacerbated by his predecessor in Bill de Blasio. He has inherited a rise in crime and gun violence. Indeed, one might say that Eric Adams would not be the mayor if crime was not what was on the minds of New York City Democratic voters when they went to the polls. I believe Eric Adams is somebody that will get prime speaking time in conventions and will be a player for things like the New York State gubernatorial race that will almost assuredly feature Andrew Cuomo after he survives his deadbeat dad summer. Which he took another step toward, by the way. Also this week, Cuomo uh, declared an emergency of gun violence. A state emergency of gun violence. Big moves by somebody who wants one more big election. We've got a date for the California recall election of Gavin Newsom, September 14th. Newsom has raised $15 million in a cycle that has no fundraising restrictions. That includes big payouts from former Google and Yahoo boss Marissa Mayer and Netflix CEO Reed Hastings. Polls remain favorable for Gavin surviving the recall. Now. I, somebody hit me up with a a, a a comment that said, "You know, Justin, what I really like is when you do the what they should be doing stuff. When I when I from the sidelines, shouting from the peanut gallery, explain to highly paid political professionals, you're doing it wrong, and here's how I would do it." And while I appreciate that comment from uh, uh, the the, the dear and precious listeners to this program, I am still aware (laughs) that, you know, this is not something, well, I am just a guy. But I am just a guy with strong opinions. And so here's another what they should be doing segment. You would think that if you were the small and dwindling California Republican Party, you would be spending every waking moment highlighting any and all weaknesses of Gavin Newsom. And let me remind the California Republican Party that this has been the worst political year of Gavin Newsom's Existence. He has never been more vulnerable than he is right now. To put it in video game terms, you know when you you, you are able to knock the final boss out of whatever defensive position he's in, and, and then they start like flashing red. That's what Gavin Newsom is, and he's not in this position often. Let me remind you that he will not be in this position when he runs for reelection in a year. Because if we're just talking about Republicans versus Democrats, there are more Democrats in California and the Democrats will always win. It's the reason why Gavin Newsom, with that 15 million dollars, is going to spend a lot of money branding this the Republican recall because he wants to make it like the election in a year. But it's not. And if you were the California Republican Party, what you would be doing is highlighting everything that Democrats would not like about Gavin Newsom things that are uniting between all party affiliations. I would find closed businesses, specifically businesses that are black and brown owned. I would be holding rallies. In Austin, Las Vegas, and Phoenix. I would ask former Californians who have moved in the last year why they moved out of California. I would be highlighting the fact that there has been an exodus. I would be shredding the arbitrary COVID policy of Newsom. I would create a month-by-month a, a, a month understanding of how those guidelines changed, why they changed, and if there's no reason why they changed, highlight the fact that they changed for no reason. I would be creating a name for the coming wave of taxes that will be required to make California whole again after the lost revenue of 2020. I would be highlighting the fact that Gavin Newsom has a surplus right now as a a once-in-a-decade nest egg that he is going to frivolously fritter away because he is scared to lose his job. He didn't protect Californians when it was his job, and now he is paying to paper over his mistakes in $100 bills that will have to come out of every Californian pocket over the next 10 years because he not only mismanaged COVID health-wise, he mismanaged it financially. That ends my what they should be doing. Because they're the California Republican Party. They're the Washington Generals to the Democrats' Harlem Globetrotters. They are doing none of this. In fact, the biggest story that's coming out of the California Republican Party right now is the fact that there's a fight internally. Never. In mainstream, big boy, million dollar budget politics, has there been a fight amongst so few over so little? The idea that the California Republican Party would be fighting with each other for what? The right to get curb stomped by Gavin? Good Lord. Here's what they're fighting about, according to Politico whether or not the California Republican Party is going to endorse one candidate. In the lead is former San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer. That decision is at odds with a grassroots favorite, Kevin Kiley, who is a California State Assemblyman who wrote an ebook about how bad Gavin Newsom is. This entire process is... Very stupid. To be totally honest, Falconer, John Cox, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, and Kevin Kiley should be openly collaborating. Take a page of Catherine Garcia and Andrew Yang. In fact, let's go back to that for a second, because there is a mathematical argument, considering how thin that margin was between Eric Adams and Catherine Garcia, that if Catherine Garcia had been out on the trail campaigning with Andrew Yang earlier than she did, because she did it after early voting had began, if she had done that earlier, she would have been the mayor. She held off. Andrew Yang apparently wanted to start doing it in March, and she held off until the very, very last moment. Every single one of those Republicans should be out there generating as much press as possible, working together. The idea that they're running against each other is very stupid right now. Because what they actually need to do is generate vulnerability for Gavin Newsom, not beat up on each other. When quotes are showing up in national political outlets talking about how much of a rhino Kevin Faulkner is, all you're doing is talking Republicans who would love to vote Gavin Newsom out of office from going to the polls. That's what you're doing. Present each and every one of them as four flavors of conservatives. Because this is not a normal election. This is a very strange election. This is an election that comes in two questions. Question the first. Should Gavin Newsom be fired from his dream job? And number two. Who should replace him? You got to... Make number one the right answer if you want number two to have any relevance at all. You want to know the candidate who's going to replace Gavin Newsom if indeed he is to be replaced? The one who does the most damage to Gavin Newsom. Any moment that any one of these candidates or surrogates are talking about another Republican candidate is a moment that they might've well spent. I I just remembered that this, I got so worked up about this. I remembered this was a family show now and and people listen to this with their kids, but let's just say a moment better spent where they were exploring themselves for gratification purposes. Attack Newsom! Attack Newsom together! Attack Newsom apart! Attack Newsom in-state! Attack Newsom out-of-state! Find ways that you can highlight his failures beyond the fact that he's a pretty boy who wears hair gel. This is about real people with real problems in California. This is a very democratic state. But he's not popular. Not as much as he needs to be. And yet, at this point, I can't imagine him losing. There are less than 10 days left to declare oneself a candidate in this recall election. And some of the bigger name hopes, like Richard Grinnell, a former Trump administration official uh, who was among the first uh, gay cabinet members, looks like he is not going to jump in. That means that there will not be an Arnold Schwarzenegger in this race. Apologies to our friend Meet Kevin. There will not be a Logan Paul in this race. RIP my theory. And if that's the case, and the California Republican Party is just going to California Republican Party this, then I think both Cuomo and Newsom Are going to have a very prosperous and sexy deadbeat dad summer. September 14th is the day of that recall election. That means I'm gonna head out to California. Oh, yeah, I'm coming back, baby. I got to come back to the Bay. I got to come back to the Bay for this one. Uh, Maybe we'll even do a live show. I don't know if I'm allowed to. I'll start calling around to my favorite theaters. See if we can do something. Love to do something in Oakland. Got an idea. You can help support it if you'd like. Not only could you come out to the show, but you can help finance my... Hotel, my, my my flights, this is an entirely independent operation. We have no advertising, as you can see, which means it's up to you. Patreon.com slash. Oh, wait, no. that's We don't say that anymore. <laughs> we say takepoliticsseriously.com. I've got too many Patreons. Uh, 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 takepoliticsseriously.com is where you go. You're going to get something for your money. If you have not enjoyed the Patreon extras, uh, and by enjoyed I mean tried it lately, I really encourage you to, because I've gotten good feedback on it. We get the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show. That comes out midnight Monday uh, morning where I break down all the Sunday chat shows. I tell you guys what is, uh, what the narratives that are being pushed, what a win or a loss looks like messaging wise over the next seven days. And then of course we have the late edition. The latest news that is broken on this show happens on the Thursday edition of The Extra. I do my best working hard for you, and then I spend most of the money, when I can, traveling to get better coverage. I greatly appreciate uh, uh, you guys being there for me and remaining there for me. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Issues with Congress and the stock market are nothing new. The pandemic brought along a few high-profile instances of privileged governmental information being leveraged for private financial gain. Unsurprisingly, Congress has learned nothing. Our guest today is no stranger to the show from the D.C. Bureau of Insider. It's the money man, Dave Leventhal.
1: Welcome back to the show, Dave. Well, thank you for having me back, Justin.
0: So, uh, uh, Congress people, stocks—they—they're they, always getting each other in trouble, huh?
1: You know, it's it's funny how this works. Um, I I tell people about this all the time, and I and and sometimes I ask, and and they say, "Well, wait, wait. You mean that if you're a member of Congress and you are up on Capitol Hill and you have a lot of power?" And you can pass laws that you can also buy and sell the stocks of companies that are spending millions of dollars to lobby you and are also trying to jockey for millions or billions of dollars worth of government contracts and uh, and, and are testifying before your committee. Uh, and the answer is, is yes, it <laughs> is perfectly legal in the United States uh, for all of those things to happen simultaneously. And, and the next question that I'll get is, well, how the hell is that possible? And the answer to that, Justin, is, is that Congress makes the rules. So yeah. if they, they wanted to do something different, they could. And, and about 10 years ago, they, they tried. They, they had something called the Stock Act, appropriately named, which uh, did a lot of things. But one thing that it didn't do was outrightly ban members of Congress from buying and selling individual stocks. What it did do is it required them to disclose the fact uh, in pretty short order uh, that they were buying and selling any stock that they might buy or sell, it could be Twitter, or Facebook, it could be ExxonMobil, ATT, you name it. Yeah. Uh, but even even that is proving to be difficult for uh, more than a few members of congress which has been really at the crux of our reporting this year.
0: So before we get into what you specifically reported on, uh the last big kerfuffle that i can remember was at the beginning of the pandemic when senators and uh, senators including kelly leffler, the the now departed kelly leffler of georgia was charged with selling stocks after they got a briefing about coronavirus, uh, uh, so is if we're going to take that as a baseline uh, or, or, or judge our baseline based on that, is that among the more or less egregious examples of Congress people using either privileged information or, or communication with businesses or their own power to enrich themselves?
1: it wasn't egregious enough for the uh, for the Justice Department to charge either her or, for that matter, David Perdue or uh, Senator uh, Richard Barr or, or a few others for, uh, for insider trading or other untoward activities as it related to their stock trades. Now, you brought up a, a key point here, is that members of Congress much different from probably you or me or, or most people out across the country, they are privy to a lot of information about a lot of different companies and a lot of different industries that, that, that the average person is just not going to, to be able to have access to. And that information may or may not give them some sort of an insight into making a stock purchase or for that matter, selling a stock that they already own that would be advantageous for their own personal financial stability or aspirations. So this is where you get into the, the notion of insider information or insider trading. And one thing that, that is patently illegal for members of Congress is to have privileged insider information of that sort, and act on it so that they can make money or prevent themselves from losing money. Yeah. And and that was a question uh, among some of the senators that, that we just brought up. Now the probably the the most egregious example of any of this uh, didn't have happen during the pandemic or right before the pandemic, but but uh, quite a few months before we we went into pandemic mode, and that involved Representative Chris Collins, a Republican from. Western New York, who he ultimately was charged and convicted of insider trading involving um, personal financial decisions that that he made, where ultimately he it was determined that that he did do exactly what we just described. Yeah, and he went to federal prison at least for a little while until Donald Trump in December of this past year pardoned Chris Collins, and as we speak right now, Chris Collins is a free man. It's-
0: so that is what gets you landed in jail, is, is him actually using information to, to prove beyond a shadow of doubt? And I would guess, based on the baseline that we have set previously, has a pattern or history of doing insider trading.
1: In, in order to go to prison for any of this type of activity, you have to really, really, really colossally screw up and do so in a way where it's not a mistake it's not a paperwork error. It's not something where, where you just kind of, you know, meant to do the right thing, but ultimately didn't. And, and you kind of get a pass or a slap on the wrist. Chris Collins, it was determined, and, and he ultimately pleaded guilty to to doing all the bad things and, yeah. and then then went to prison as a result of it. But short of that, uh, the best that might happen would be judgment in the court of the public opinion, really, uh, yeah. and, and not be a matter of criminality, not be a matter, even if it is investigated, of, of you getting penalized in, in a significant way. And and even if you did get a monetary penalty, and sometimes monetary penalties are, are doled out in a civil sense, most of the time, the folks who are trading stocks in the six, seven, eight figures aren't really too concerned about making a three or four figure payment um, over the fact that they screwed up on a stock trade yeah. or disclosing it or whatnot. Uh, it's, it's a very, very small price of pay. It's so, sort of like, you know, when the NFL player who's got a, uh, $75 million contract over four years, uh, it celebrates a little too much and, and gets dinged with like a $15,000 penalty after the fact. I mean, it's, yeah. Rounding error, and, and that's really all it is. And we have some members of Congress who are uh, um, among the wealthier individuals in the country, and their their net value is not exactly like Bill Gates' uh, level here, um, but nevertheless, it's uh, definitely in the you know 0.1 percent of the one percent. And uh, that's not that's not everyone. That's not most people, but it is some, and those are the ones who oftentimes are, are having the most complex and the most frequent stock trades, and, and stand to get into the most trouble as of it, just because of the level of stock trading that they are doing, or having financial advisors do it on their behalf.
0: So from the reporter's perspective, what got you interested in this particular subject, and what did you find?
1: I mean, the the oldest adage in the reporting book, at least going back to Watergate, follow the money. And, <laughs> and you know, this, this is this is the kind of situation where uh, the lawmakers and their personal decisions will intersect and and sometimes be intertwined with the uh, with the public decisions that they're making or the information that, that they're gleaning or learning in, in service to the body politic, in service to their constituents. And, and it raises the issue of conflicts of interest. Uh, where do you draw the line between what somebody's just doing to make sure that their own personal financial house is in order that they can put food on the table and secure their future and send their kids to college and very reasonable things right but on the other hand if you are making decisions if you've been elected and you've been in power if the people have sent you to washington to do a job not on your own behalf but but on on the electorate's behalf then there are certain expectations that come with that and if you are making decisions that are in your own personal financial interest, and, and perhaps doing that in a way that could be before um, the interest of the people who have elected you to Washington, D.C., to represent you in Washington, D.C., then that is in the public interest to know. And as journalists, that that's what we do uh, here. And if, if we're doing our jobs, hopefully, is that we're, we're writing stories and, and we're revealing things about the way that Power works the way that Washington works, so that the public is going to have information and and have data to understand and also decide for themselves whether they think that there's something kind of funky going on here. And that's why we pay so close attention to this. And, and also, the law is written, even if it's not written as strongly as some had conceived it or wanted it. Uh, in here in Washington, the law mm-hmm. is still nevertheless just and written in a way where the point here is transparency. The point here is disclosure and and the the law is put in place so that the public will have information or journalists will be able to find this information and and write about it uh, or or tell the public about it uh, so that the public can make a decision about whether they they think this is just fine and and they're cool with it or if this is not something that they are really all that cool about when they see how lawmakers are are buying and selling the uh, the stocks that they are
0: how does that transparency work? Like, are they publishing on regular intervals what they hold? And so you can track it that way. And, and at what frequency does that happen?
1: So the way the law is written, and this, again, is the Stock Acts that was passed in, uh, in 2012. It says that if you are a member of Congress, Senator House, and you make a stock trade, and you know about it today because you made it yourself, you're on the clock for 30 days, so within 30 days you've got to file a report to the House or to the Senate, and that report will show what stock you bought, what okay. stock you sold, and it'll give a broad value. So not the specific dollar figure. It'll, for example, if you if you made a five thousand dollars stock purchase of, I don't know, pick a company. Give give me a- give me AT and T AT and T. AT and uh, the you know old yeah you know, old mob we'll, yeah We will we will put five thousand dollars, not on this document. We will put one thousand to fifteen thousand dollars on that document. So anywhere within that range is going to fall in that range. Now the bigger the stock trade, the broader the range, and you can see how this is yeah you know, kind of a difficult thing to track. If you've got somebody who's very very wealthy, so if you read some of our stories about this, often I'll say, well you know this stock trade or these 20 stock trades that a congressman made, uh, the minimum might have been around a million bucks, and the maximum might have been around $5 million. So that's a level of disclosure that that we get. Now, say you have a stockbroker or a financial advisor who makes trades on your behalf. You are on the hook for notifying publicly and filling out one of these forms, public forms, within 45 days of the trade. So regardless if you find out about the trade 44 days after the trade was actually made, uh, you're going to have to file a report the next day because the law says that it's got to be a maximum of 45 days hook, line, and sinker, no holds barred after the trade was made. So that that gets into the weeds, I know, a little bit here. But why is this important? It's important because the idea here with the, with the trade disclosure is that it's not going to happen a year after the fact. It's not going to happen five years after the fact. And when you, for example, have a pandemic that is grabbing the country by the throat and and potentially bringing it to its knees, and there are concerns about lawmakers buying and selling stocks that are going up and down based on the pandemic itself, time really becomes of the essence. And if the public is going to find out if there are any conflicts of interest here or if lawmakers are trying to profit off the pandemic, which was a very real and not theoretical question. Then, then you need that information pretty soon thereafter. The trades uh, have been made; uh, otherwise, it's going to be, you know, almost a, a a matter of history as opposed to something that that has the urgency of uh, potential corruption in government
0: one of the defenses I remember of that pandemic situation was the idea that it wasn't any of the senators. Uh, it was their financial advisors and of course they're rich people. So they would have financial advisors that are making these decisions totally independent of anybody that might have information about this coronavirus that was going to radically affect these stock prices. Uh, uh, I would imagine then that a, uh, Decisions made by a financial advisor also counts for this stock act, and B, the information that we got about the Purdue and Leffler trades, along with the other senators, uh, were self-reported.
1: Yeah. So if a you can have a financial advisor, you can have ten financial advisors. The law still applies to you. So lawmakers will will use exactly what you or say exactly what you just said. That hey, well. I have an arm's length relationship with my own money. I have a financial advisor, and it wasn't me who is buying and selling that stock. I wasn't the one who was day trading. It was my financial advisor. Well, what goes usually unspoken when a lawmaker says that is the relationship that they have with their financial advisor that they tell their financial advisor to do it. Uh, even if they don't tell their financial advisor to do it, what direction broadly have they given their financial advisor? This is stuff that does not have to be disclosed publicly. And unless a yeah. lawmaker tells you, you don't know. And you you basically have to take their word for it. Now, the other thing too, that often goes unspoken is lawmakers don't have to trade stocks. So if they, if they wanted to completely stay out of any trouble, or, or if they wanted to avoid the Perception that they might be doing something that that isn't the greatest thing in the world. Um, they could choose to just, you know, trade in mutual funds or index funds or bonds or or things that aren't subjected uh, to to the whims of the market quite in the same way as individual stocks, and also inoculate you uh, against the idea that you would be trading a stock of a company that that has direct business in front of government. It's a little bit different if you have. Raytheon or some defense contractor, uh, and and you're trading in a specific stock uh, versus if you are in like a index fund where there could be any of 100 different investments within the family of of that fund. So again, getting a little bit into the weeds, but this is important because it all goes back to the notion of conflicts of interest and potential corruption or the perception of corruption and what lawmakers can do to avoid that if they chose to do so. And finally, I would just note that uh, many senators and, and House members do do exactly that, that they don't involve themselves with individual stocks. They don't buy and sell individual stocks. They they will definitely go the generic white bread route uh, with financial investing. and And you will never see on any of these reports a single company stock. It will all be Fidelity, Vanguard, corporate yeah. bonds, or not even corporate bonds—often uh, municipal bonds, stuff that uh, is really just going to to save them the trouble that others have gotten in because of this type of activity.
0: Are hedge funds covered in this? Like, if if, they, if someone just puts a bunch of money in 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 one of these hedge funds that are day trading?
1: Yeah, uh, it would depend on exactly the kind of fund that it is. But yes, if you have a personal investment. Uh, most personal investments are are covered by this. Now, yeah. you may or may not have to um, list that in those quick report, those quick turnaround reports. I should also note that everyone has to file an annual report, which has even more information in it, although it is slower. So if you have some sort of, you know, real estate investment or, or something that, that wouldn't be subjected to these periodic, very quick turn Types of disclosures, and you will have to put it in your annual disclosure too. So, yeah, and and it's annual disclosure season. Happy annual disclosure season to you, Justin. uh, Where (laughs) oh, indeed, yeah, and and senators are going to have to be doing just that. Um, One of the the more interesting and often fun or eye-opening fun to journalists uh, or (laughs) eye-opening disclosures that you get in these annual reports are royalty payments. So, royalty payments can come and. A number of different forms, one that we see a lot with with members of Congress are book royalties. Uh, In fact, we just reported that Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, he actually earned more money last year through book royalties than he did his Senate salary. So these are pretty lucrative deals that some of these members uh, of Congress can get. And they have the option to donate the proceeds that they made from their book to charity if they wanted to. But also too, they have the ability to pocket that money if they so choose. Uh, all they have to do is disclose the fact that they made the money, and what they do with it from there on in is more or less up to them.
0: You know, total aside here, but I was uh, for another project that I'm working on, uh, uh, researching an old PBS a uh, uh, Frontline episode called "Why People Hate the Press," and one of the major issues that they hammer on is. The press or members of the press cashing in on speaking engagements, which is so funny because like this only came out in, I think, 97 or 98. Like it was like there is a website for it, uh, uh but a very, very early one. But it's so funny to to see like that's not anything that anybody really even talks about these days, especially amongst. You know, press people. It's like if you can get paid to do a speaking engagement, it's it, it's more like good on you, not like oh, you are eroding the, the the thread of trust between journalists and and people.
1: But you know, that's a real thing. And hey, let let's uh, let's turn the camera back at ourselves here. If uh, if you've got some reporter or some editor or some mucky muck in in the corporate media world who's getting paid. $50,000 to talk in front of some very, very special interests that has political interests. Well, heck, yeah. I mean, why, why wouldn't that be fair game, too? The same applies to politicians if they're going and yeah. going on speaking tours or engagements uh, that are uh, going to be with a, a very, very elite group of people and uh, it, that that gives them uh, money for what uh, basically is access that can be a big deal. Now, oftentimes the way that they will do it is not through speaking tours, but they they will do it through political fundraising events. And uh, we we have found uh, more examples than I could possibly count, Justin, of of where lawmakers will, for a price, will set the price and that will get you a certain level of access. and, And that's the way that it works. If you are rich, and you have an interest that you wanna get before a congressman or a senator or whatnot, uh, you pay your 5,000 bucks or you pay your X amount of dollars and you suddenly are there on a Zoom call with the senator or you are there at the dinner with the senator one that we wrote about uh, recently involved Senator Mike Crapo, who is a Republican in uh, Idaho, who quite literally provides a, a point-by-point menu. It's almost a smorgasbord of what you will yes. get at various price points for for your donations. What level of access, and you can actually pick and choose different events that you can go to depending on how much money you're willing to donate. Now, lots. Of folks do this Democrats definitely do this too, but I had never seen in covering this for years and years something that was so hyper specific uh, as this. and yeah, some people were outraged, but uh, even with this, it was sort of like, well, that's just kind of the way it works uh, there's there's been almost a certain expectation that has set in in Washington that this is how it goes, and as journalists, you know, our job is not to cast judgment but it definitely is to report on it and let people cast the judgment as they see fit.
0: So one last question on this and then I want to get to some uh, some other uh, fundraising stuff with you. Uh who in your research is the most active trader in Congress?
1: We have a few. Uh, I think one that we have focused on heavily this year is Representative Tom Malinowski. He is a Democrat from New Jersey. And he, well, two things stood out. Number one, he is a very, very active trader. Not the most active trader uh, in the House, but definitely makes dozens and dozens of stock trades uh, every month, typically. Uh, so could we call him a day trader? Absolutely. He he also is somebody who says that he has a financial advisor uh, and that he's not the one who's sitting on his phone on, you know, Robin Hood <laughs> or TD <Yeah. laughs> Ameritrade, uh, making making trades on his phones while, while taking house votes. Uh, nevertheless, he has uh, made millions of dollars of trades uh, over the past couple of years, and, and he did not disclose a single one over the course of, of about a year and a half uh, until we wrote an article and got information and asked lots of questions and, and revealed the fact that, that he had just simply been breaking the law the whole time as it was by written. By not reporting um, it. By just simply not reporting it. And wow. one thing that is notable about his situation is he was making trades, uh, very heavy trades around the time last february and and last march when the pandemic was really you know taking hold uh, again in the united states and he was trading for example a company called uh, cambio diagnostics incorporated hardly a household name justin but what do yeah. they do well among the things that they do is they're an infectious disease testing company and mm. their offerings include lo and behold covid-19 tests so you know these are the types of things that um again, when people ask, well, does it really matter all that much? We've got so many other issues in the country, like the pandemic, or like this giant infrastructure bill, or the economy. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that you could potentially have lawmakers who are quite literally making trades about COVID-19 products uh, as COVID-19 is ravaging uh, the country. So uh, that's, that's in part why it matters a lot.
0: All right. Uh, 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 fundraising stuff, because we are getting some interesting uh, numbers in. On Wednesday, we found out that Mark Kelly out in Arizona, who is up for a a, a boomerang re-election situation in the midterms, raised uh, $6 million, which is a lot of money this early in the process. Uh, uh, how big of a number is that in, you know, uh, more than a year away?
1: If we were having this conversation a decade ago, my, I'd, I'd be on the ground like that would have been yeah. just absolutely astronomical, crazy, unthinkable money that nobody, whether you're running for the House or the Senate, would be raising a year and a half removed from a midterm election just did not happen. That, that, okay? would, that
0: would be an entire campaign not too long ago, right? Like, would, or at least it wouldn't that, be far off from it
1: that would be a fairly decent haul for a us senate campaign for an entire election cycle yeah 15 20 years ago and and now like that's that's pocket change man like <laughs> it, 6 million dollars in a competitive race uh we're not talking about you know where a senator is in a total red state and they're a Republican and they're going to get token opposition and they're going to win by 40 percentage points and everyone knows it. Different story. If you're, but if you're in Arizona, okay, if you're in Ohio, if you're in Florida, if you're in a state that, that truly is a a swing state or, or purple enough where it's going to be competitive, even a Texas, where, where Democrats are, are trying, you know, to win that first, statewide election for the first it time is very in very years.
0: fashionable very fashionable for for democrats to charge headlong into the abyss here in texas uh,
1: yes uh, and you know, what's going to happen there well six million dollars over a quarter i mean in a race like that is almost like oh man they, they've kind of underperformed so yeah at this stage <laughs> of the game that that's what we're looking at we're looking at seven figure fundraising hauls for a three-month period because this stuff gets reported at this point in time over yep. a three-month yep. period, and so yeah, Mark Kelly, uh, it's kind of kind of a shoulder shrug, like, oh yeah, well, of course he's going to be raising that kind of money. He's in a competitive state. He's in a competitive race. What it speaks to, though, is how state elections or or statewide elections uh, are really no longer statewide elections. They are they are national elections in yeah. their own right, even if. Even if people in New Mexico will not be voting in this race, even if people in New York and Georgia and Washington State and North Dakota are not voting in Arizona, one thing that all of them can do is donate money to the candidates in that race so that that candidate can raise $6 million or raise $20 million or whatever the heck it may be and and really that that is a function of of the ease with which people have right now to to donate money uh act blue which is a yep. liberal democratic fundraising platform the the, the really official the, the official democratic fundraising very platform much, right and 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 they're a true innovator uh in this regard now the republicans have developed win red which is the uh answer their answer to act blue and has been, I think you could say, less successful. It's also much newer than yeah. Act Blue has been. But the same underlying principle is there, that it's super easy to donate money. It's sort of the Amazon.com one-click theory of making a payment. and Recurring. Seen, uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, sign them up for make your monthly payments, and so, sometimes we'll even check the box for you, which is a highly controversial thing. Ah, Congress yes. even considering a bill to ban this uh, because a lot of people, especially people who might be elderly or or might be uh, you know it, it, susceptible uh, to or, or don't have the financial sophistication to necessarily see that this is going to put them on the hook month after month after month for making a payment um, you know, vulnerable populations and, and people have been incredibly duped. I mean, the horror stories, stories of, you know, your 87 year old grandpa who just thought he was going to make a, you know, $50 donation to Donald Trump's campaign or a $50 donation to Joe Biden's campaign and ended up making, you know, $50 a month, (laughs) $50 contributions. And, and it, it just, you know, totally burned out his bank account. Um, so so that that's a real thing right now but nevertheless like we're we're talking huge money coming from all corners of the country in all of these races and and people who are just amped up and just so willing to respond to those histrionic emails that people get or text messages or see something and just want to do something about it and will make a donation to a candidate that they've never heard of in a race that they don't care about cuz it's 3000 miles away but yet they're plunking down that hundred bucks, and they're not the only one. One last question,
0: one word answer, and I'll get you out of here on this. I want to get you on the record. What race will be the most expensive in the midterms? So both Ooh, candidates.
1: It's so early. Uh, I I I don't want to take a pass on this because that's a total pop you out.
0: You're you're not allowed uh, to do it. You have to name. You have to name
1: one race can, can I pick a state race? Sure. Yeah. Uh, it might not be the most expensive, but I think it's got an outside shot. So I'll give you our dark dark horse uh, case and that that's going to be the Florida gubernatorial race. Um, and I was thinking that, uh, and and here's why, uh, two words back at you, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis matters uh, because he is one of the, Most uh, high-profile governors of country uh, in the country right now, Uh, he Democrats think that they actually have some chance of knocking him off, and if they do knock him off, that is going to be perhaps the 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 biggest trophy that they the Democrats could possibly get, Um, because if Donald Trump doesn't run for president in twenty twenty four. Ron DeSantis, DeSantis. is going to yeah. be absolutely at the top of everyone's list uh, as the potential Trump 2.0 successor to the Trump mantle and the Trump legacy. So that that could be a major twofer, which I suspect is going to drive a whole, whole heck of a lot of cash to a race that uh, even if all those factors weren't in play, would still be huge because it's Florida and it's one of the biggest states in the country and there are multiple media markets. And it's just hella expensive to run there. So you got confluence of lots of factors that, that really add up to what could potentially be a nine-figure election, um, among other races around the country that also too could be very much nine-figure elections, because we had several of them among Senate races alone just this past election in 2020.
0: Yeah, for whatever reason, I, I think the Rubio race has a chance to be almost bigger because I think that there's more actual like talent that the democratic party cares about in that race than there is in the DeSantis race. But I, I, I agree with all of your, all of your underlying facts though. I think Florida is just a, an expensive state and B it will, as it often is the loudest state uh, when it (laughs) comes to uh, many things, including the midterm
1: elections. Uh, Dave, where can people read you? They, they can read me at Insider, uh, the artist formerly known as Business Insider, which we still use uh, as well. Businessinsider.com, Insider.com. And I tweet at Dave Leventhal. That's L-E-V-I-N-T-H-A-L.
0: Absolutely. And everybody, go get that, that Insider Pro subscription. It is great. They do an amazing job on that site, including, of course, the D.C. Bureau. Thank you so much, Dave.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. It was edited by Brett Stewart. You can go ahead and thank Dave Leventhal for being on the show by heading on over to px3guest.com. Our email is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3 Tweets are live. Twitch streams are at px3live.com. Our newsletter is at px3newsletter.com and our podcast is at px3podcast.com. You can get our merch, including logos and mugs and masks and our COVID shots equals body shots, T-shirts, and tank tops at politicsmerch.com. You can support me directly with a one-time donation to PayPal.me/payjury. Our Venmo is just a dash young dash twenty, and our Cash App is px3cash. You can send any physical items, including ca- or uh, yeah, cash, yeah, unmarked bills, checks, whatever. PO Box fifteen thirty one eighty four Austin Texas seven eight seven one five again PO Box fifteen thirty one eighty four Austin Texas seven eight seven one five. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts each and every week, covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule on Wednesdays and Fridays. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast, like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier, including... Headphones, Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the government unfiltered podcast, 100 mile runner, Berkeley, Stephen, Kathy Mack, Zombie Doc, D, really? Methudela, Honeythuckle, the gen, middle aged Mike.com, junkies, calamities app, D, laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Chad, David, Snuffies, off Route 44. Charles, Olin, and Angela, D.L., Miranda Janelle, persons familiar with the matter. Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Will, Just Another Pilot, Frozen Summers, J. Pink, and Andrew, you want your name read next to them, yeah, head on over to seriously.com and sign up at the $10 level. That's it. For this week, another in the books for the PX3 era. Temperatures heating up. Recall has a date. We got our eye on that Virginia gubernatorial election. Might finally have a little bit of tingle, a little bit of sizzle to this show electorally. And we've got some special stuff coming your way either next week or the week. After, I want to thank everybody for supporting this program. Andrew Heaton's on the show next week. Till next time is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying, uh, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss
1: Oh three,